Welcome. This is To Live in Law in LA, a Nixon Peabody podcast. Homelessness. Over half a million people in the United States are now homeless right now. In Los Angeles alone, homelessness has almost doubled over the last decade. Over 50,000 men, women, and children sleep in our streets every night, making LA's homelessness population larger than the capital of Pennsylvania. The mayor has called it a crisis, and the government dedicated millions of dollars in funding to build housing over the next 10 years. But homelessness is incredibly complicated. And some experts say that simply providing housing may not be a one-size-fits-all solution. This is the first episode in a series of discussions we're planning to have on homelessness. We will bring in perspectives from a variety of different stakeholders who are all attempting to find a solution to this multifaceted issue. Today, in our first episode in that series, we talked to LAPD officer Dion Joseph about his 20 years of work as a senior lead officer in one of the most notorious homeless communities in the world, Los Angeles's Skid Row. He strives to humanize this community, calling every single person who lives there his friend. His efforts have reduced crime by 18%, and he's transformed many of their lives by helping them find their way out of homelessness. But as you'll hear, there's still a lot of work to be done. Enjoy the episode. Welcome. This is To Live in Law in LA. I'm Jade Turner-Bond. I'm an attorney here at Nixon Peabody, and I'm here with my co-host... Hi, I'm Shannon Egan, also an attorney here at Nixon Peabody. And we're here with a very special guest, uh, Senior Lead Officer Dion Joseph, who works in Skid Row. He works as an LAPD police officer. And we're so excited to have you here. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for being here. Yes, welcome. Glad to be here. I think this episode's really important. Obviously, we live in LA and we're dealing with the homelessness issue. And so I, I thought it was an important episode to bring to light because you have such a great character and you're doing such amazing work. Well, and you. I feel like it's important to kind of get that out there. Now, tell us a little bit about your philosophy and your definition of a good police officer. My definition of a good police officer is not just someone who patrols a community, but it's one who becomes like family to it. Mm-hmm. And uh, when I first got to Skid Row, uh, it blew my mind. I saw people having sex on the sidewalk, open-air drug dealing, drug uses, right. women and men defecating on the sidewalk, and I was first assigned to the front desk. Mm-hmm. And I thought, that was the good Lord answer my prayers. I don't have to praise, deal with Praise this. the Lord. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. And I was wrong, because where's the front desk? In the heart of Central Station. And I was forced to absorb the weight of oh, wow. society's failure to help the most marginalized in our society. As every 15, 20 minutes, for the first two weeks I was there, there was someone coming in with their arm broken backwards. Uh, the, uh, one lady came in with her eyeball kind of dislodged. Oh, a man came in with his intestines hanging out. And the common thread was, I don't want a police report. I don't want a snitch. I got to live here. Just give me an ambulance and get me out of here. And that was disheartening that the people felt there was no help. They felt that even we couldn't protect right. them. So over time, I was uh, introduced to mental illness in a way I never imagined. Mm -hmm. And uh, by the grace of God, uh, uh, the community accepted me over the years after they trusted me. They saw my heart and they uh, allowed me to work with them. And I was able to do some pretty incredible things, but it didn't start off very easy. But I also learned that a lot of people in Skid Row... Uh, who are there, they aren't really homeless. Uh, They have a place to go. It's just because of addiction, dual diagnosis, and the way that our society has uh, basically refused to help them in a responsible way. They go there uh, and and because of addiction. 
And uh, and that's pretty sad. I think we should just talk about that. I know we talk about civil liberties right. and the protections that the mentally ill have. And I think sometimes that can work against them, right? Because yes. you have people that are mentally ill. Usually, mm-hmm. you know, mental illness, sometimes you hear that it's from some early childhood trauma, mm-hmm. right? They're not being treated Treatment, for this right. illness. Right. And so you might see some self-medication right. in addition to just right. maybe an addiction right. problem, right? Yeah. And then it's very difficult to hospitalize them. Mm-hmm. Oftentimes it's, it's hard to do that because of the way the laws work. Right. right. Um, and so you end up in jail, right. in, which is Absolutely. really becoming more of a hospital right. than right. an actual. In actuality, uh, the America and American solution for helping the mentally ill is to sprinkle pills on them in the name of civil liberties and kick them out in the streets. And uh, and some of them, uh, when those uh, facilities closed back in the 70s, they fell into the loving arms of families. Right. But a whole lot of them didn't. And they ended up in Skid Row. And here's what happens when they get here. And I need everybody to listen to this if you care. If you care, and I've seen this for 21 years in the streets of Skid Row, they come to Skid Row with their prescribed medication, okay? But they don't like taking their prescribed medication right. because it makes them feel down and lethargic. Right. And in Skid Row, it's what my sons call turned up. <laughs> you know, yeah. you, can, you, yeah, you can't be down when it's turned up. That's right. So they sell their prescribed medication to make enough money to buy the heart stuff from the Crips and the Bloods, who actually work together in harmony to prey on the people. And that exacerbates their condition like a hundredfold. Right. So uh, we know mental illness is not right. a crime. Being paranoid, schizophrenic, being bipolar, none of these things are crime. If it was just that, that's easy. I dealt with that easy. But when you mix that with crack uh, methamphetamines and heroin, it has a disastrous consequence because there's a chemical buffer between us and the crisis. Even the best trained mental health clinician will not approach them in that state. And that's what people need to understand. And here's the saddest part about it. And I've seen it for so long. They make the perfect victim, especially the women. How do you tell the police you've been raped when you believe your attacker was Santa Claus? You know, and uh, it's tragic. So what kind of options are available to LAPD and what kind of resources do you need? Because obviously mental health is a huge part of this. Yes. And incarceration doesn't seem to fix mental health. And we totally agree with that. And so what kind of resources are available to you to help these people who clearly need mental health assistance? And And are addicted, right? Right. And that's the hardest. What resources would be helpful for you all, you know, to be available? Well, I could tell you what we have now and what I think would work. Mm -hmm. What we have now is completely impotent. Uh, we have the 72-hour hold. Okay. If someone's uh, um, a danger to themselves, a danger mm-hmm. to others, or gravely disabled, where we can force them in to help. They're supposed to be there for 72 hours. Mm-hmm. They're not even there for 72 hours anymore. Wow. It's six hours, and then they check on you. Are you okay? And then they release them back into the streets, only for that revolving door. In my opinion, uh, it shouldn't be 72 hours. In my opinion, it should be six to eight weeks. And here's why, mm-hmm. if we really care. Uh, since many of them are or dual diagnosis, you have to detox them first before you can even reach them. Right. right. Because a lot of them, though they're mentally ill, if they want to get their drugs, they're going to say, hey, I'm fine, and go back That's out right. there and do the mm-hmm. same thing. Detox them, and then during that period, obviously medicate them because it takes, on average, sometimes four, six to eight weeks for their medication mm-hmm. to actually settle okay. them down That's and right. stabilize them. Then develop a rapport, which they should be able to do better than me. Not that I'm not, I don't care or that I'm not equipped. I just don't have the time. I have right. to go to call to call to call. Right. Uh, develop that rapport for this purpose so you can find out who their loved ones are and give their loved ones a chance to gain conservatorship over them and gain some control to help keep them on a steady track. Because I cannot tell you how many families, and it almost makes me want to tear up. Yeah. Call me, email me, text me and say, can you help me find my son, daughter? I'm trying to get conservatorship. But I found them. I found them. I, I hospitalized them. But then they come down from Indiana, Chicago, and then their loved one was released six hours later and they're back yeah. in the streets and they came out here for nothing. So we, that has to change if we're serious. And I know people go, oh, it's money, it's money, it's money. Look, 
you know, you know, if we want to change the situation, we have to invest in the situation. I tell you, so I, my brother has a schizophrenia. And so he's, we've been through this cycle a lot. And the difficulty with getting a hold, and even if you can get 72, and then you can get 14 days. I mean, initially, it's very hard for family members to do things it's like extremely this. Extremely hard. And then, but conservatorship, I mean, that is a real nightmare. And yes. the system is not, the, the, the counties, they don't, people don't want to be responsible. And so right, it's, right. even those mechanisms are extremely difficult for family members even when yes. you decide that that's necessary yes it's it's a battle right it's and then a and i think what you've said in some of your other interviews is that people feel comfortable it doesn't matter if you give these people housing right. um and right. i and i want to speak specifically to maybe some people in skid row i don't think right. that this might be reflective right. of all homeless people no, but it's different everywhere i think that when you're dealing with mental illness and addiction Mm-hmm. This is not a one size fits all approach, right? And you have so to be agree. very specific in the treatment for this this population. Yeah. Well, yeah, and I think it's important to make a distinction here, right? We think about the the homelessness problem in LA generally. Right. And there's a lot of unsheltered people in Los Angeles, higher than really any other city. Right. But Skid Row's different, yes. right? It's very not different. just about making housing available for people. Right. So can you speak about how Skid Row is a little different? Yeah. You know, what's the number one, one of the uh, biggest tenements of uh, someone in recovery is uh, to help someone get clean is environment is everything. Right. Mm-hmm. And in Skid Row, the people there, no matter what they're struggling with, whether it's mental illness, whether it's drug addiction, they don't have an environment conducive mm-hmm. to change. And uh, we always, always say, think of your favorite celebrity. And I won't mention any names so I don't get in trouble. <laughs> 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 but your favorite celebrity, uh, and you can think of many of them, uh, when they fall off the wagon, where do they go? They go to Malibu, Passages, right. they go to Betty Ford. Right. They're doing yoga. Horses are running around. They're working out. They're sniffing <laughs> right. incense. Why? To get them away from the temptation to fail. Let a drug dealer come within a thousand feet of those facilities. You're going to have a problem. Uh, In Skid Row, our brothers and sisters there, who to me are of equal value, who are actually trying, they have to get better in the middle of what we call Dante's Inferno. Right. Right. How is policing for you different? I mean, because not everything is probably going to be like an actionable violation, right? right? I mean, are there certain things that you are looking out for? I mean, are you paying more attention to the drug dealers, the sexual abusers. We I mean. were one of the first divisions in a department, I think, I'm not even sure of in a nation, to provide an alternative to jail for many of the individuals who were drinking on the sidewalk, sleeping on the sidewalk, mm-hmm. smoking crack on the sidewalk. If you didn't kill anybody and we knew that drug addiction, mental health, alcohol addiction was driving you to commit crimes, we offered you a 21-day program. And if you completed it, we dropped the charges as if it never existed. And most people, when I talk about that, they don't even know that even though it was the biggest part of our operation. Mm-hmm. In fact, 2,225 individuals in 2009 were signed up for the program. Now, of course, right. <laughs> only a f- 30% of them probably completed the program. Mm-hmm. But once again, 30% is not a failure. That's not, right. You're right. You're right. I was seeing these individuals in many of my stomping grounds who were once in the streets with one sock on and, 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 and a diaper looking for crack. Now they're in Compton, Watts, Carson, Long Beach, uh, where I'm from. I'm seeing these people who are getting, who are now back home. And it sounds like your department is completely supportive of these efforts. I mean, you guys Absolutely. are creating policies. It's, it's not necessarily what you, you see publicized all right. the time. No. And that's unfortunately that, in my opinion, is kind of done on purpose. You know, a, a lot of people out there know the good we've done, but it's not sexy or politically correct to report it. And that's unfortunate because it would give people a sense of balance. That way, if something we are challenged, they don't go so hard and tie our hands so hard to where it puts people in danger. And that's where we are. Mm-hmm. I mean, yes, I agree with taking a, a very humane approach, but you also have to remember the homeless. No one can be above the law. What happens when rich people are above the law? We have Enron. What happens when poor people are above the law? You have Skid Row. Mm-hmm. You have Chicago. 
south side of Chicago, Baltimore. So no one can be above the law, but I do believe we should infuse compassion and more services. So obviously it's an uphill battle and getting drugs out of this community is a large part of that. Huge part. And in order to do that, what does the LAPD need to do its job better? Is it more officers? Is it more financial support? What does that look like? I would say we have the officers. We just need the support from the upper echelon of our justice system to hold those who are are the wolves hiding amongst the sheep uh, more accountable. I'll never forget there was a young lady who was recruiting 12-year-olds to sell drugs on Main Street. And I arrested and I felt I did my job. I did the right thing per the law. Not for the rest of her life. She was supposed to do three years. Yeah. That's three years that that young lady couldn't hire 12-year-olds to do her dirty work. Mm-hmm. She got slapped on the wrist and was put on probation. And what message did that send to her? And what did she tell her cronies who were coming down here? Hey, nothing's going to happen to that's us. Right. And they flooded the area again because nothing happened. And so that's so I'm not talking about ruining people's lives, you know. Uh, but but at some point when you, when there's drug programs and people in recovery, we have to take it serious and send a strong message to those who who come and exploit and hurt the homeless that you can't do that here because you wouldn't let it happen at the right. Ford Clinic. And so I always kind of think like if if I had all the money, right, I had all <laughs> the resources, like what would I do to solve this problem? You know, wow. um, one of the things I've always thought about is kind of having you know, I don't know what it's called an institution, but a place, right? A university right. type where that it was housing and mental health, just like doctors, right? Yes. Medication. Mm-hmm. But I'm also hearing the importance of keeping the wolves out of a place like that. Right. If right. you had kind of unlimited resources, I mean, you're retired now, <laughs> kids are taking care of, wife's taking care of, right? And you can <laughs> yeah. really focus your energy on this. Like, mm-hmm. what is your vision for solving this problem? The interesting thing about that is money doesn't solve it. Common mm-hmm. sense does. Or common sense with money does. <laughs> right. you know? uh, so, of course, with the money, uh, I didn't implement common sense programs like decentralization. When I say decentralize, I don't want to shut down any of the programs in Skid Row uh, and move into other areas. That's not what I, I want. We need all 108 programs in Skid Row to deal with the level uh, uh, that, we ha- that we're having right now. Uh, what I don't want to see is another program put in Skid Row. I don't want to go back to the containment zone strategy because mm-hmm. it didn't work then and it's not going to work now. Mm-hmm. We have 88 cities in L.A. County. Uh, we need other cities to step up and take the weight off. And look, I get it. You don't want our hardcore drug addicts. You don't want our gang members. I get that. But what about families? Mm-hmm. We have right. 267 children at the Union Rescue Mission right now and with 119 mothers. And these are beautiful people. And I, and I hate when I hear this. We don't want those Skid Row people from here from, uh, coming to our town. Look, those people weren't from Skid Row. They're from yeah. Long Beach, Carson, Compton, uh, Pasadena, and they ended up in Skid Row mm-hmm. to get help. So creating a low-income supportive housing for families, a shelter, emergency shelters for families, so I don't have to tell a family you have to wait in line to get shelter with your three-year-old child sitting right, right there. I don't ever want to tell anyone that again. And so I, I want to talk about this environment that's conducive to change, which seems like it's a that's a big part of what you think it will take, right? Because right, right. part of the problem is that, you know, you live in an area where there's drugs all around you, right? And you can't get out of that struggle. And then you don't have facilities where those that can take you out of that environment. There's right, not an right. environment conducive to change. Right, How right. does that interplay with that NIMBYism, the not in my backyard? NIMBYism is our biggest foe. It's not just the foe of the police department. It's the foe of Department of Mental Health. It's the, part, the foe of every shelter mission, every housing advocate. The problem is, is that where these shelters can be built or where these facilities can be built, you know, the people in those communities don't want the population of Skid Road there. The most dis- disheartening thing I ever saw 
was about six months ago, a um, good, wonderful human being named Andy Bales. He's the director of the Union Rescue mm-hmm. Mission. He was trying to build an off-site transitional facility for families, 81 families, and take them out of Skid Row because of the horrible environment and put them into the city of Compton. I went to a conditional use permit hearing there, and I was invited to speak on his behalf. I thought I was at an alt-right rally, <laughs> and this is Compton, and these people had their pitchforks, they had their own tiki torches, and they were demonizing and vilifying the homeless so bad, and the facility, and I know how it was going to operate because they have another one in Silmar uh, called Hope Gardens, and there's no crime there, it's run perfectly, and, and I helped speak up for them there. I They had a harder time convincing the folks over in Compton than they had with the people of Silmar. I never wow. I never thought I'd. And one of the things they say, we don't want those skid row people. For me. 25% of the people in the shelter are from Compton. They even brought a family up there, a mom, a dad, and three kids to testify that, hey, we're not bad people. And it was like, that's nice. Move on. Never saw anything like that. That was the most disheartening thing. So, yes, NIMBYism is a complete enemy. But what we have to do is do a better job of showing examples of 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 decentralizing actually working. Mm -hmm. And if they go to Hope Gardens, you'll see a perfect example of it working, how it's not impacting the community negatively. Uh, We have to show examples of how it works. And I don't think as a whole uh, we all do a good job of showing uh, good examples of uh, how it can work. So now if people want to get involved and really help out, what can they do? Where can we start? Come down here. If you're going to feed the homeless, don't feed the homeless in the streets. And I know I sound like a complete jerk saying that, right? Yeah. Uh, I'm not saying don't come down and help. Come help in a responsible way. Nobody starves in Skid Row. Mm. Between the five shelters and one housing uh, program, they serve about ten to 11,000 meals a day. Wow. Don't give out clothes because the clothes, you won't see naked people either, okay? Right. Uh, that's a stereotype. Because they're going to take that and they're going to put their halos on and they're going to fight over the clothes when you leave. And the items they want, they're going to line up on the sidewalk and sell to make money to do what? Destroy themselves, right? And what they don't want, the food, the clothes, they throw it into the street. And that's why we have typhus now, because the clothes, the food pile up, the rats, the roaches come through, and then disease spreads. People Mm -hmm. use the clothing to wipe themselves, to lay on, and then you have scabies and lice. Don't do that, because this is somebody's community too, okay? Uh, Here's what you do. Come down with your words of hope, but bring hygiene kits. Mm-hmm. In those hygiene kits, just a little sandwich bag, have lotion, uh, lotion, soap, sanitary napkins for women. Oh, hand sanitizer. That's huge to reduce mm-hmm. the spread of disease. These things de-incentivize the streets and may encourage somebody who's been on a four day crack binge to go take a shower. And in that shower, they have a sobering moment and might check into a program. Wow. So those are a couple of things. And also, if you agree with anything I've said here about changing the system, changing right. the mental health laws. Hey, let's mobilize. Let's get together and challenge our leaders to make these changes. You know, I've seen how people come together uh, against the White House and all these other stuff like that. What if we did it for our brothers and sisters on the street struggling with mental illness? And that's really how lawyers can get involved to help this effort, I imagine, is with legislation, right? Yeah, shining a light on the people who need our help. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Changing mental health laws. I mean, making conservatorship more accessible in the right circumstances, right? Making sure the holds are a sufficient amount of time. Not getting so many roadblocks when it comes to like civil liberties and people that are diagnosed, right? Mentally ill, severe schizophrenia. That's national. I mean, that goes across. Yes. Right? I mean, that we can kind of get behind, right? Absolutely. And I'm a a police officer and I agree 100% with you. I'm with you. I'm with you. And, but unfortunately, when I leave here, the system's going to fail and I'm going to end up arresting another mentally ill person for a violent crime. Mm-hmm. Sadly, I am because we need you, everybody to come together on this. 
if we, I want to, I want to sit at a table across from a civil liberties attorney. You know, right. I, I want to sit across with you. I want to work with you. That's right. You know, no more of this animosity. It's because who's getting hurt in the long run? The very people we're talking about right now. Right. And it'd be That's great right. to get like a group where you have like the district attorneys, you have the police officers, you have, you know, civil liberties you and you get together. I mean, because mm-hmm. it, it, people have people in their families, right? We all know someone. You're kind all. of like, we really wish that there could have been more there in place within the system, right? That's what we need. Yep. Yeah. I need to, for me, I need to hear more of that mm-hmm. yep. than the failure uh, because I'm tired of it. I'm tired. Yep. And so we have three questions that we like to we ask all of our guests. All right. Um, the first thing is, what's your favorite thing about L.A.? Oh, my God, the diversity. Yeah, uh, right. I, I love the diversity. I grew up uh, in neighborhoods all my life where the, it was black, Hispanic, Filipino, Samoan, and a couple of cool white folks. It was, <laughs> <laughs> these are the communities. always. So I always feel like with diversity, you, you, you have a better community because people are automatically taught to kind of respect yep. that yep. other person. I, I don't believe it should be forced on everybody, but it's a great model to look at. Um, even in my vice unit, the, the most impactful I was at, we were, I, we were at, that unit was ever in was when we diversified. We had such a good and we were able to impact positively the community. So L.A. is uh, the, the diversity, I think, is beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. OK. And what advice would you give your younger self? Oh, man. I know. Right. What advice would I give my younger self? Slow down. Uh, because uh, when I was a young officer, I, you know, and, and my heart was in the right place. Go get the bad guy. Go get the bad guy. And I would open my back seat and throw every bad guy I could in there. And the <laughs> optics of the community is that I'm just getting their friends. Black, and, black, and, yeah. and I didn't have time to stop and explain that I'm doing this for the right reasons. So I would tell myself to slow down. Yeah. Be more proactive about finding about programs to help people mm. uh, beyond handcuffs, even if you handcuff them. So over time, that's what I would tell my young young self. Yeah, yeah. I love my young self. He was a hot guy. He was was in shape. Boy, he could run. (laughs) But no, but I don't miss him that much. I like him now. (laughs) Good. And so, um, you know, in in your profession over the next uh, few years, kind of, how do you see things changing, or do you see things changing? Uh, With the current environment, no. I think um, uh, until we are ready, fed up with uh, the politics of, mm. of, of homelessness until we're really ready to get down and see what's going on and people stop exploiting the homeless for pol- political purposes. And I hope that still can happen. I don't know if I'll be able to change it in this capacity. Right now, all I can do is show a lot of love and do the best I can to support the services here. But I think when I'm done, just going out and educating the next generation, yep. college campuses, talking to other police agencies and really telling them the truth about what's going on so they can respond to this issue in a truth-based yeah in a truth based uh, based on a truth based foundation that's where the change will begin because right now it's, I would say it's going to take about 8 to 10 years for us to see any real change mm-hmm. based on the climate you know right. it's not that we don't have the ability the climate limits our thinking and mm-hmm. limits our ability to move so so probably beyond that yeah yeah, that, yeah. Well, thank you so much. Thank this you. Great. Yeah. Thank, thank you, guys. You. This is great. This, this is, great. is easy. All yeah. right. All right. <laughs> well, I was ready to box today. Now. <laughs> <laughs> We're usually fighters. <laughs> this has been To Live in Law in L.A., produced and edited by Jesse Lumen. If you like this episode, please consider leaving us a rating and comment on iTunes or sharing it on social media. If you have any questions, please email us at livelawla at nixonpeabody.com or visit livelawla.com to find out more. This podcast has been presented by Nixon Peabody LLP, but the content is meant simply for educational purposes. And accordingly, the views expressed do not reflect the views of Nixon Peabody and are not intended to provide or should be construed as legal advice. This podcast is not intended, nor does it create any lawyer-client relationship. 
listeners should seek their own counsel and should not act in reliance on anything expressed by the presenters. To the extent that this podcast may constitute attorney advertising under various state ethics rules, we note that any prior results do not guarantee a similar outcome.